0: And Welcome to All Rings Considered, EW's podcast about the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Now, if you've already been listening to this podcast, then you know that there is actually not a new episode of the Rings of Power to discuss this week. Season one has wrapped, all eight episodes are streaming on Amazon Prime Video, and now begins the long wait until season two. So instead, on this episode of All Rings Considered, we are journeying to the undying lands, the resting place of heroes and gods, To check in with a previous lord of the rings adaptation that has absolutely become immortal that's right we are talking about peter jackson's lord of the rings movies the cinematic masterpieces that made big budget fantasy storytelling a viable model for the 21st century without them we wouldn't have game of thrones the rings of power or certainly this podcast i am ew writer christian holub and i am joined as ever by my co-host Devin kogan Devin how are you dealing with rings of power withdrawal?
1: I am definitely in withdrawal I, i'm I miss it i I've gotten so spoiled you know each week we've had you know eight episodes seven weeks of getting to to go to middle earth each week and now we have to wait, you know, like a year or more for it to for it to come back. And so I'm definitely in withdrawal, but I've had a lot of fun um, reading all of the, you know, analysis. You know, we we had our interviews with with some of the cast members. Um, I've had a lot of fun talking about it. And I'm I, I also have talked to anecdotally a couple of people who are watching it now. You know, now that the whole thing is all yeah. out,
0: I know a lot of people were waiting for that.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about this one for a long time, which I love because I could talk about Middle Earth all day every day.
0: <laughs> right. I'm also interested you know since we did the week by week thing and we're always analyzing the mysteries and the plot threads I'm interested to see how that plays for people who are binging it who may have been spoiled by Twitter or something you know But, you know, there's an easy fix for uh, Lord of the Rings withdrawal, which is we always have the Jackson movies, specifically the extended editions. Hell yeah. And, you know, I know you're in L.A., the land of eternal sunshine, but here we are in New York. The weather's getting colder. The winter holiday season is approaching. I figure there's a lot of people out there who are gearing up or maybe already have started, uh, you know, an annual rewatch of these movies uh my friends and i watch do a star wars marathon every year around this time i'm sure lots of people do lord of the rings marathons and i've also i've, I've to my family and i have turned them into christmas movies we like to pop them on on christmas eve a lot of the time you know these movies came out when we were when we were young when we were growing up they are, you know speaking for myself they're certainly very formative I'd already read Lord of the Rings by that point, but they really brought it home and and watching them and rewatching them over the years has solidified my fandom of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien as much as reading his actual books. Uh, Devin, what do you remember about kind of your first experiences with these movies? Did you see them all in theaters?
1: You know, I don't actually remember if I saw... I know I definitely saw... Two Towers and Return of the King in theaters. I actually don't remember about fellowship. I was like you, um, you know, introduced to the books first. I, you know, like many people, had a dad who read them to me. Yep, yep. Read me the hobbit first. Read me the Hobbit, moved- yeah. And then moved right on to Lord of the Rings. And when I was very young and I was like, oh yeah, there's like a lot of death and and it's a little (laughs) intense, but I and loved it. Um, And yeah, I mean, these movies have always been a huge part of my life. I I rewatched them, you know, like not to get all sappy, but like sometimes when I'm, you know, having difficult moments in my own life, I mean, I've turned to these as a comfort. I'm not a huge... Movie rewatcher all the time, Mm. but these are the movies that I rewatch constantly because I I think there's something just really delightful in them. It's a it's the world building is incredible, the performances are incredible, and I'm I'm never not amazed by how well they still stand up. You know, we we talk a lot about nostalgia and the things that we loved as a child, and these are films that are have not only held up, but I think have even grown in esteem over the last 20 years. They were obviously very well celebrated at their time, you know, Return of the King, swept the Oscars famously. But I think there's something, their, their legacy has kind of only grown as how, one, they shaped not only broader fantasy storytelling, you know, in Hollywood, but also like what a big budget fantasy story could look like. And, the reason I love these movies, or a lot of the same reason I love Tolkien's work, is you know these themes of camaraderie and and you know fighting against evil and and the little guy triumphing in the face of you know insurmountable evil is is just and they're also just fun. They're just beautifully made. They're fun. They're fun to look at. The effects to hold up. Everything is just like they're bangers. Every single one of them. There's not a bad movie among them. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: They're funny, they're sad, they're thrilling, um, all the effects hold up, things get better with repeated watches. You know, in the in the interest of that, today we're going to be structuring this episode, kind of running down 10 of our favorite moments from the Jackson Lord of the Rings movies. Some of these will be, you know, of course, iconic moments that everybody remembers that will just nerd out a little bit. Uh, some of them also just like small moments that have really etched themselves in our brain over the years. Because that's the fun of these movies, its just watching them again and again. I, I know that I notice things every time, especially when you're watching The Extended that are like four hours long, that maybe it's a detail you didn't pay attention to last time. So yeah, and I mean, this is something that, you know, if you've watched Rings of Power, if you've watched Game of Thrones, the Jackson movies are the classic example of, they are the influence, they are the thing that got everybody going, and yet they still feel kind of unsurpassed in terms of quality and and all those things we've been
1: mentioning. So why don't we get to it? Bring it out, Devin, do you want to start our top 10 countdown? I think I'm going to kick things off with an absolute banger of a scene. Mm -hmm. um, And one that should come as probably no surprise to anyone who knows me, because this was extremely formative in not only, you know, kind of shaping who I am, but like also my interests. is, we got to go with A.O.N. killing the Witch King. It is... A perfect moment in a perfect film. Everything about it rules. Miranda Otto's performance, incredible. It still makes me cry twenty years <laughs> later. It's a it's a beautiful adaptation of of the scene that happens in the book. We we talked about this on the podcast before, but one of my favorite things about Tolkien's work is most of it is just him being like. Eh, I think I could do Macbeth better. Like screw yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> and yeah. This is a very, you know, we we get to that with, um, you know, when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane with the with the ends, and we get that here with no man can kill me, and in Macbeth, obviously, it's it's or, no man born of woman can kill me, and he's like, I was born via C section, um, yeah. and you know, Tolkien read that and was like, well, that's stupid. I could do yeah. that better. It should be no man can kill me. I am no man. And I just I love everything about this scene. I love everything way about the way Jackson directs it. Um Dominic Monaghan gives a great performance as Mary, who has the kill assist in, in taking <laughs> yeah, Down the, Witch the, King.
0: the uh Charlie Horsesm stabs him in the back of the knee. He meeting. does.
1: And it's just it's it's a great, you know, it's it's an iconic moment for when a lot of women are underrepresented in, you know, a lot of classic fantasy storytelling. It is it's an incredible moment. But it's also it's not like cheap or like feels shoehorned in. It feels, you know, earned and, and beautiful. And it just, it still makes me cry. It's so good. And I just, yeah. <laughs> makes me want to go stab an ancient sorcerer in the face.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think. And also in keeping with Tolkien's themes, it's very bittersweet, you know, like it yeah. really messes her up and she's out of commission for, for basically the rest of the story until the end. And so it's, it's, you get that cool moment, and you also get the the backlash. Is the great stuff about Tolkien's storytelling and the way Jackson adapted it. Um, all right, you started things off pretty hot with a, a, a big, crazy moment. So I'm going to go next to a moment that I love and that I really love more every time I watch The Two Towers. It's a small moment, but I think it's very... Important and telling, and it's after the exorcism of Theoden. I'm actually kind of wrapping this in. People who know me um, know that probably know that I love the exorcism of Theoden when when Gandalf kind of vanishes. Uh, Saruman and Grima's hold over Theoden. I think that's an amazing scene. You know, I've had some sicknesses this year. I was I had COVID. Uh, you know, around Memorial Day, and and I had a horrible sinus infection uh, a couple weeks ago that laid me out for a while, and uh, and coming back out of a sickness always feels like kind of Theoden, you know, <laughs> standing up at Edoras, holding his sword, and I love that scene, but there's a small moment that is kind of the coda to that scene, where Theoden wakes up, throws Grima out, gets Saruman out of his body, and the first question he asks is, where's Theodred? Where's my son? Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's kind of forgotten that his, son, his only son uh, died while he was sick and twisted, and so Gandalf takes him to the the symbol mind mounds in the extended edition, you kind of get actually a funeral procession where Eowyn sings a song, not my favorite extended scene, but I do love this coda where, where Gandalf and Théoden are standing among the symbol mind mounds. And uh, Théoden is really pondering the end of his line and the end of his house because his son has died. He said he, ha- he has an amazing line that um, I know my dad loves, which is no parent should have to bury their child. That This yeah. is wrong that he's dead and I'm alive an adaptation of a similar line in the book. And Gandalf, to comfort him, you know, is showing off some of his Maiar knowledge and is just like, but but talking in, in mythic terms that Theoden would understand. He says, Theodred was brave in life. He, he was brave when he died. He'll be in Valhalla, you know, because the Rohirrim are kind of Norse, I would say, in, in some mm-hmm. ways. Uh, he's in the halls of your fathers. And this is the myth of the consolation. Like, there's an afterlife, and, and he's there. Don't worry about it. Like, he's doing great. And uh, Bernard Hill's acting in the scene is just incredible because the, Gandalf says that, and it cuts to Thaedon, and he's just bawling like a baby because all the mythic consolation in the world, all the assurances of the Valar and the Maiar and whatever spirits he believes in doesn't change the fact that his son is gone and and he can't hold him or or look him in the eye anymore. I just think that's incredible uh, as people who know Tolkien know he was a survivor of World War 1 and it really informs most of the legendarium that experience and and I think that this is a great example of it that just like yeah dying sucks. And like as much as this story makes war and fighting look cool, it also has a cost and and there's just nothing that can Replace a human life. So not to get too down, because I, I just love the bittersweetness of it. I think it's performed incredibly well. And it's one of those small moments that, you know, you're watching the first 50 times or whatever. And maybe you're like, okay, yeah, but like when's Helm's Deep happening? And then the more time I spend with these movies, the more times I watch Two Towers, that scene really sticks out to me as uh, very important. And I just love it
1: and and shout out to Ian McKellen's performance especially here i mean he's extraordinary throughout the entire trilogy but but really there's you know that small conversation with with Bernard Hill is is really really lovely
0: right just after he's done all this big work in the exorcism scene yeah he's he's really got the range
1: Which rules? Well, I'm, we're gonna, we're gonna keep on a sad track and, um, we're gonna go for another death. There's a lot of, a lot of great deaths in this entire trilogy. And I gotta go for a classic from Fellowship of the Ring, which is poor Boromir sacrificing himself to to protect the hobbits and getting just absolutely shish kebobbed with, you know, dozens of arrows.
0: Those arrows are freaking huge.
1: They are very intense. It's crazy
0: how big those arrows are. There's so
1: many and he takes so many of them. And there are a lot of great Sean Bean deaths. He is famous for them, but I think <laughs> nothing will ever top You know this this beautiful moment where Boromir sacrifices himself to try to protect Merry and Pippin, and ultimately fails. And it is just it's such a beautiful, heartbreaking moment. Sean Bean plays it incredibly, and it's it's a beautiful sort of bittersweet not not even bittersweet, just like like heartbreaking capstone to, you know, Boromir's journey. You know, I I I'm ready to fight anyone who says that Boromir is a villain or or a bad character and and there are there are Boromir haters out there and, you know, obviously he is the the member of the fellowship who is most easily corrupted by the ring. But he is a heroic character and he does believe that he's what he's doing is right and he repents and, you know, is incredibly brave.
0: This is how he repents.
1: Yeah, this is his repentance. And um, I love all the little moments, you know, throughout Fellowship where he's like teaching Mary and Pippin how to fight. You, You get this real sense of bonding. And I think Sean Bean does an incredible job. I mean, he's really. Other than a few flashbacks, this is this is his one film, and oh, the death scene and the, his con- you know that conversation at the end as he's dying with Aragorn, I would have followed you, you know, my brother, my captain, my king, um, is just oh, it gets me. It just oh, we, we've talked. I I cry at that too. I cry a lot. It went yeah, watching this. So <laughs> that's um, what do what do you make of of the Boromir death scene?
0: Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, he it's really, so he good. really, he really goes through it. Like it, this is another thing that I've watched over many times. It's just like, it, like, as my dad says, those arrows are like tree trunks that lertz is, is hitting him with.
1: Lertz, flipping lertz. Yeah. We
0: love, we love lertz. Um, this big
1: Ariana Grande ponytail.
0: <laughs> or does Ariana Grande have a lertz ponytail? Excuse you. You know, either um, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's interesting that in some ways his motivation going into that scene is like a mirror of the Urukai, which is that the Urukai have been told to take the hobbits because they have something important. They haven't been told any more detail than that. And so they see Merry and Pippin and they're like, well, this is who who we got to get. Even though like as you're watching, especially in fellowship, their worth becomes more clear as it goes. They seem like the most useless members of the fellowship. Like why would you sacrifice yourself for them of anyone? Um, but the orcs have been told they're important, and this is Boromir's way of making up for his betrayal of Frodo and his attempt to take the ring. Well, I, well, I couldn't save Frodo, but I can save them. He also has these moments of friendship with Marion Pippin throughout the movie, like he's teaching them sword fighting and stuff. He he takes them with him over the bridge when they're jumping the bridge in Casad Doom. So he really has a little uh, relationship like this that's never really said out loud, but is just visible through the action and and the acting. Um, that makes it very sweet.
1: Yeah, it's also big brother vibes. I mean, we learn later that he is, you know, famously a big brother to yeah. Faramir. And uh-huh. you get echoes of that where he is he is a protective big brother and he does feel a sense of duty.
0: Which differentiates him from Aragorn, who is used to being a loner, is not used to, uh, yes. be, like, kind of learns his friendship with Gimli and Legolas, especially over the course of Two Towers. He's used to being on his own, not telling anybody anything, keeping everybody at arm's length. So you get that great. And then, of course, the great reconciliation between him and Aragorn is so great. Not, you know, we wouldn't call it homoerotic, but like male love or like dude love, like from Scrubs it's a bromance. musical. It's a bromance. And just uh, two guys showing love for each other is really great. It, that's just a really great moment of it. I've read powerful essays by writers about how much that moment kind of meant to them. It's all good. And is there anything else? Oh, yeah. I also think that it's a great achievement in adaptation because people who've read the books know that Boromir's death actually happens at the beginning of Two Towers in yes. the book. And I just think it works so much better this way. Like, it's a climax for the movie. You know, a death right at the beginning of a new movie or story doesn't really make sense. So it's a testament to, as much as we may talk later about a few things that they left out of the movies... Uh, this is a great example of a change that I think totally works and makes a lot of sense in the adaptation.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. I think that I think it ends on the perfect note and with, you know, with the the breaking I mean it's the the first book and first film is called The Fellowship of the Ring and it ends with yeah. the breaking of the fellowship. Exactly. Um which I think is is beautiful. So
0: Totally. Well, my next moment comes from the actual kind of beginning or or middle of Two Towers, the next movie after Fellowship because Two Towers, on some days, and certainly for a while now, I've been saying it's my favorite of the three, even though they're pretty co-equal. They were all made at the same time. So um, there's not a lot of difference between them, except in terms of like what happens in them. And one of the great things about Two Towers, and something we haven't mentioned yet, but a major, major example of these movies' influence on cinema is Andy Serkis' entrance as Gollum. Hell yeah! He's inventing, in the course of this filming motion capture technology that is now taken for granted in Hollywood is in everything, you know, in things like the Mandalorian and modern Star Wars stuff, they make the entire show that way, but he's inventing it for the first time. And it's just incredible. And specifically, I love, of course, the moment where Gollum is talking to himself in the water and like talking to his reflection. This is a scene you see in a lot of stuff. Uh, The Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, which are similar to these. Movies, in that it's someone who made their bones in low budget horror splatter that really gave them the sense of practical effects and costuming and stuff, taking this big franchise and doing it better than any of their imitators. Raimi and Jackson, I think, are, are similar in that way, and not just because they were making these movies at the same time. But you also have, you know, there's scenes where like Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborne is like talking to his own mask, and, and that's how they're Classic. showing the, the personality disorder. And, uh, but the, but the Gollum talking to Smeagol is, is the best.
1: Nobody likes you.
0: No, I was about to say one of the most things I've gifed most in my life, like (laughs) joking with friends, I send them, you don't have any friends. Nobody (laughs) likes you. I've sent that a million times, uh, over my life. It's crazy that, you know, these movies won a lot of Oscars, certainly Return of the King. I think only Ian McKellen maybe was nominated for an acting Oscar for Fellowship it's crazy to me like circus stuff work in this movie in these movies is absolutely Oscar worthy. They have to give him an honorary Oscar someday if they're not to. already planning to for this alone, but also for all the other stuff that he's done over the years and how he took it farther and planted the apes and stuff. It's also easy to forget 20 years since these movies came out, how Lord of the Rings was famously seen as unfilmable for years and years and decades before that. And one of the reasons is what the hell does Gollum do or look like? He's like a little weird freak. Like, is it a costume? Is it a guy in a suit? Uh, And he's not in fellowship except his eyes pop up in Moria. And so it's this question linger. I remember sitting down for two towers the first time and, and being like, how is Gollum going to work? And like from from minute one that he's on screen, it's like, yep, there you go, that's it. And that's Gollum. That's Gollum. You know, that's one of the franchise's biggest impacts on pop culture. As I said, is this invention of this technology and the creation of this just unforgettable character. And as everybody knows, Gollum is, and even more than Gandalf predicts, is is one of the most important figures in Lord of the Rings because he is the vehicle through which Frodo demonstrates and, and learns. His empathy, which is what ultimately saves the world, not force of arms or or valor or heroism. It's the fact that Frodo really does have sympathy and, and empathy for Gollum and never forgets that there's not much separating them and that the ring could... Easily turn him into something like Gollum, whereas most people would be like, "You get this freak out of my face." Um, <laughs> that is what makes you know. Gollum is what makes Frodo a hero, really, as much as as much as anybody else.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This entire sequence slaps. Andy Serkis' performance slaps. Everything about it is just extraordinary. I mean i've I've talked a lot before, both on this podcast and you know on on. Dig a Dispatch, which is EW Star Wars podcast. And I, I say this a lot, but I think part of the reason the Lord of the Rings films still look so good and feel, you know, so real and so lived in is that. Even when you have entirely, you know, motion capture characters like Gollum, it's, it's fascinating because the, the rest of the world feels so tactile and so real. You know, a lot of this, so much of this was shot on location in New Zealand after trekking up a mountain. And as opposed to, you know, creating an entire set, you know, on a soundstage or, you know, on a blue screen. And so you have. Stuff like Gollum is sort of the garnish. It's not the whole meal, you know, when it comes to CGI. I think that's that's one of the things that I, I love about these films, that you have this amazing motion capture technology, but you also have, you know, amazing prosthetics and amazing, you know, practical effects. You look at the orcs who all look incredible and creepy. I'm never not impressed by... How immersive everything is with Gollum, and and the really the world building as a whole, um, with this entire trilogy. And I think that's something we we talk about when we talk about the Hobbit movies. Um, is there's kind of a a, a little bit of an uncanny valley, you know, kind of vibe with those. But yeah, I just Andy Serkis's performance and every just iconic. There's a reason everybody has a, a Gollum impression in their back back pocket. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, entered pop culture in a way.
0: Yeah and before we move on to your next pick I just I did have to read the Gandalf line a little bit because this line is about Gollum and it and yet I think it's so uh relevant to real life and morality that you know many that live deserve death some that die deserve life can you give it to them frodo then do not be so eager to deal out death and judgments uh because you don't this is one of the great things and it comes up in the in the books as much as in the movies that just like You don't know what Iluvatar's plan is, and and everybody has a part to play in the world. And so rather than raging at people or or wishing death or, or harm on other people, sometimes it's good to think about their role in the world and how they are impacting you and and the rest of society. Um not going to take that tangent too far, but just like, you know, that's that's another thing I love thinking about. And it's about Gollum. It's about Frodo saying, "Oh, well, why don't we just kill him?" And Gandalf says that and I think it ends up being kind of one of the most impactful things that um Gandalf gives Frodo.
1: I love it. Yeah, you've picked two very good Gandalf like wisdom.
0: I mean, I love of, I love Gandalf. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we can move on to um, my third pick, which is um, also kind of lighthearted and is, is a fun one, a nice, a nice palate cleanser after, after Boromir's death, <laughs> um, which is Legolas and Gimli counting their kills. And I'm going to use that to talk a little bit about how much just the entire Legolas and Gimli dynamic in these three movies rules. I love everything about it. Um, and, and something we've talked about is a lot of... We've been talking about Rings of Power, which, you know, Elrond and Durin being the most, you know, obvious parallel where you've got a, a mortal elf and a, um, a mortal dwarf who are kind of, if not sworn enemies, have have been raised to, you know, distrust each other at best, hate each other at worst. And um, these, you know, two unlikely figures strike up an un- unlikely friendship. And I I just... I love... Orlando Bloom and John rhys Davies in these films I, I just their chemistry is so good would you like me to get you a box is iconic um, I just I, I I love this friendship and it's something that is you know a huge part of Tolkien's work since the beginning the idea of people of different backgrounds and you know of different cultures and and you know coming together and finding unlikely friendship. You know, we see it in the last alliance of elves and men, we see it with with Legolas and Gimli's friendship and it's just it's fun to watch. It's delightful. I love, you know, some of the Legolas stuff is so ridiculous, the shield surfing, the surfing on the elephant, like that still only counts as one, like all but it's it's just fun. And I I I it it's flipping delightful. That's part of why I think Elrond and Durin have been one of my favorite parts of the Rings of Power is because it echoes that relationship and that friendship so well. And one of my favorite things is that, you know, after the events of of Lord of the Rings, um, basically Legolas takes Gimli with him to the Undying Lands. Which is just, it rules. I, I, I still think about, there was a Tumblr post like a zillion years ago about Legolas smuggling Gimli into the Undying Lands like a contraband Twizzlers into a movie theater. And I think about that constantly. <laughs> like that's just etched into my brain. So I, I think about that a lot. That. But- you know, so we, we love, a we, uh, again, we love male friendship. This is, I, I think that Absolutely. Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest depictions of male friendship. You know, some of it reads more romantic than others, but I, I think it is just, there's a tenderness and a warmth to so many of these relationships. You know, there's a security in, in masculinity and, and it just, it rules. I, I think we need more of that in, in big budget storytelling. I don't think we get nearly enough of that. And that's something that Jackson and, and Tolkien understand very well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, that still only counts as one, Devin. And <laughs> I, I love that. I love their friendship. So much of it is expanded in the movies, both with Legolas's crazy right. stunts. The the counting the kills works so amazingly well. And and in fact, you know, I do love that the, the Elrond Durin relationship. Owen Arthur is is probably my favorite performer in Rings of Power season one as as Prince Durin. Um, And they do reflect Legolas Gimli. But, you know, when you think about this, it is like mostly we see them like talking or they have the rock splitting contest. That's kind of a reflection of the killing contest or the drinking contest in Extended Return of the King. I wish we saw them doing more stuff together because I think that's so key to Legolas and Gimli is even though we can think of these exchanges and these lines have so much of the way the friendship is built over the course of the three movies is Watching them travel together and, and fight side by side and make up these contests and, and really come to know each other. You know, I think Rings of Power could use a little bit more of that to not just tell a story through dialogue, but but tell a story through,
1: through action and, and physicality and stuff as well. Um, I love when um, they meet Aimer for the first time and, you know, Amer threatens Gimli and, and Legolas is immediately like, you would die before your stroke fell. Like it is, he's immediately like, don't mess with my dwarf. How yeah. dare you? Yeah, it's very almost romantic
0: that moment. And uh, it's so good. And yeah, Gimli and Legolas, I think safe to say that they are kind of the crowning achievement of the Fellowship of the Ring in some ways, uh, you know, aside from destroying the ring, like the fellowship is supposed to be this model of people from different races and backgrounds coming together in a way that's unusual for this world. And the fact that they become such utter friends that they end up spending eternity together is, is validation of what was intended by assembling the fellowship. So I think that's wonderful. For my next pick, I'm going to take a break from Gandalf, although only a brief one because I just have to talk about the Rohirrim coming to the Pelennor fields to relieve the siege of Gondor. Flippin' rules. You know, there are so many incredible battles and action sequences in these movies. Um, you know, we t- kind of talked about the skirmish with the Urukai at the end of Fellowship, but this moment is just incredible. My dad and I saw Return of the King in theaters with my sister definitely at least half a dozen times, and by... You know, fourth, fifth, sixth viewings. My dad would be like quoting Theoden's speech along with him. This this makes him tear up. For me, sometimes I pull it up on YouTube just when I need to get amped uh, up or pumped up so good because it's just incredible. And in fact, when my dad got remarried a couple years ago, my uh, speech at his wedding was entirely based around Theoden's speech and uh, a new dawn, a red dawn as the sun rises. So I have a personal connection to this scene, and and I just love it. And even though I said that I like Two Towers. Or, I'm most, it's easiest maybe for me to put two towers on because it doesn't start or end. It's just kind of all Middle Earth story all the time. Return of the King, obviously amazing too. It's just so epic and so massive scale. And that's kind of the funny thing about Return of the King is that this happens and then there's still like an hour and a half, two hours to go. Oh, yeah. and, and how do you, I it's true for the story in general. Like, how do you up the Pelennor fields because it's just so incredible. And one time, you know, it's it obviously, it, it, as always in battle, you know, and, and in war, uh, victory and good feeling doesn't last for long. It's, it's shortly after this victorious uh, charge against the Orc army that the Witch King shows up and, and kills Théoden and leads to your favorite moment. But yeah, the, the Rohirrim reinforcements arriving with the sunrise when all hope seems lost is just one of the great Lord of the Rings moments.
1: It rolls. and I—I mean—and then I mean, there's so many good speeches in in this entire trilogy. Yeah. I have a, a particular soft spot for um, Aragorn's speech at the Black Gate, which is also a banger. Absolutely, um, you know, we we love it, and and yeah, I love the the Rohirrim here. Um, well, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, you can hear the rest of our our list of the top ten moments in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Welcome back to All Rings Considered, where we are counting down the top ten our top ten favorite moments in uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings film trilogy. We've been through six, so we've got four to go, um, and it's my turn. So I'm going to kick things off with probably one of the most internet famous moments in these <laughs> in these in this trilogy. Certainly, it is a, a brief moment. It is probably about three seconds long total. And that is Aragorn returning to Helm's Deep after he is believed to be dead. And he opens the doors and he staggers in by, after, himself. by himself after literally falling off a cliff and being rescued by a horse. Um, and he staggers in and it is so good. It is so good. It is all you have to say to someone is just Aragorn in the doors. Like, and they know immediately what you're talking about, because that is such a, specific scene actually there's there's a great clip where where someone asks um Morfith Clark who plays Galadriel in the Rings of Power what her, one of her favorite moments from the Lord of the Rings trilogy is and she calls out Aragorn in the doors because it's <laughs> so good it is just look uh Viggo Mortensen incredibly hot in this role I was
0: going to say you can
1: come out and say it you know like literally uh, changed a lot of people's lives in this role. <laughs> let's let's say it. And it's just, he's so grungy and gross, but he comes back and he's the king returning and he opens the doors and everybody's like, oh my God, he's here. Our boy, he survived.
0: <laughs>
1: and like, look, Aragorn is very hot at the end of *Return of the King*, where he's finally taken a shower and combed his hair, and like you know, had a crown. But it is nothing. He is he is way less hot than he is when he's all scrunchy Dirty and, and gross, sweaty. Yeah, and oh, <laughs> just. Just honestly, just shout out to Viggo Mortensen's entire performance in all three of these films, because this Absolutely. trilogy would not have worked. I mean, it wouldn't have worked with any of the any of the casting. And it was literally
0: like, I mean, some people out there might know the, minute. It's the last minute. Yeah. like they were ready to go with another guy playing Aragorn. And it's just. It's just unimaginable.
1: Well, originally they cast a much younger actor, um, mm. which I just, I don't think it would have worked. I think Aragorn needs sort of world-weary gravitas. You need the idea that this is a guy who has been living in the woods for the past 80 years. and you know, Right.
0: They leave that on the extended edition because right. it is a little weird to talk about how he's like 100 years old, but like, he's yeah, 80. you need those wisdom uh, behind his eyes.
1: Uh, yeah, I just I cannot say enough good things about Viggo Mortensen's performance in this. It's just I, you know, and that's a little bit of a departure from the books. Where in the books he's a little bit more, he has a little bit more conflict in the films about joining, yes. about becoming the king, you know, and 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 sort of taking up his mantle. That in in the books he's a, he's a little bit more like okay, I'm ready to reclaim. Things.
0: Yes, and Andoril is reforged in Rivendell at the Council of Rivendell in fellowship. So he right. has it the whole trilogy, and basically everyone he meets, he just draws Andoril. Is like, this is Andoril. I'm the king.
1: <laughs> he's like, do you know who I am?
0: That's not the Vigo. Like we were like the Aimer face off that we were talking about yeah. in the books. He pulls out Andoril and he's like, I'm the king of Gondor. So like, don't try anything. And like, that's not what Vigo's character. It's it, it, it's this much more interesting arc of a guy who's been so used to hiding who he is now that the time has come, feels really reluctant about uh, taking that step and is always doubting himself. So it really becomes a a compelling character arc through the three movies. And, And Two Towers is really kind of the turning point where he's kind of forced to step into this leadership role, because whether he's a king or not, he has this knowledge and this charisma and this power and this leadership that's really needed uh, when the Rohirrim have their backs against the walls, literally in this mountain gorge. And by coming in through the doors, he gives them what they needed to overcome the siege. Um, you know, my sister growing up was definitely a Legolas girl. She always lost her mind at the, at the stunts and the shield surfing and the Oliphant.
1: I think for millennial women of a certain age, I, there are two types. You are either an Aragorn girl or a Legolas girl. Yeah. Legolas is a very pretty boy. He is very handsome. He's got great hair. He does cool backflips and stuff.
0: Never sweaty or even he would dirty. Be, he,
1: would, he like walks on um, snow, doesn't even sink into the snow. Yeah. Um, he would treat you very well. He's a gentleman. <laughs> yeah. But Aragorn, Aragorn's where it's at, man. Aragorn forever. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to hand it back over to you for, for your next pick.
0: <laughs> I will happily take it, and I will uh, talk about um, another pairing that is, unlike some of the other ones we talked about, not romantic or friendly. Um, but it is one of the great adversary pairings in the series, which is Gandalf's fight with the Balrog. The Hell fight's yeah. so good, uh, we needed to see it twice. Because <laughs> as much as I love it in Fellowship, I love that it gets replayed not once, but twice over the course of the Two Towers movie. Another great creative choice in adaptation. You know, Gandalf recounts it in Two Towers, the book, but and much of, much of his lines and stuff are just taken directly from Tolkien. But it's incredible. I mean, again, we were kids when these came out. So, you know, girls may have been uh, arguing over over Legolas or Aragorn. Guys, myself included, anytime you found a sizable stick, you just lifted it in the air and said,
1: You shall not pass! Oh, to be clear, I did that too. You're right. Well, you I gotta. did that too. What well, You know, so, that I mean, you gotta. You have to.
0: Yeah. Iconic. I have to recite the speech, which is... <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, you have to.
0: I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of honor. The dark fire shall not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. This is also relevant to Rings of Power because Udun was actually the name of the big battle episode, episode six, that ends with Mount Doom being activated. The episode title is Udun, which uh, basically just means doom in Tolkien's language and is what Gandalf calls the Balrog. I mean, I love that speech. I've had it memorized for most of my life. And I just think about it so much. Uh, because none of those terms are really explained, not least because Gandalf just falls into a pit after. So he's not just like, <laughs>
1: like These here's out. <laughs> what I
0: meant. But I think it's, it's it as far as mystical nonsense words, which are obviously such a big part of fantasy of this genre of, of fantasy like this is like, you know, how do you make something sound ethereal and epic? There's so much actual meaning I feel like contained in here. Uh, you know, that I am a servant of the secret fire. That's Gandalf's whole thing that he is, even though he's very powerful, he doesn't show it until he needs to. He's a very humble character who is serving the Luvatar and the cause of life, basically, which is what the secret fire is wielder of the flame of honor he has this power from valinor that he is not going to bust out for just anything you know as aragorn says as a rule you hobbits can only see his tricks and his toys the fireworks but faced with a a fellow maya which is what a balrog they're equivalent spirits right um, he can bust out his full power and it's just so so epic and incredible and i love i love the scene in fellowship I love that they use it again to open two towers. I love the extended scene of him fighting the skeleton Balrog because it's just, they go down into the deepest pit of Moria, and then they go up all the way to the highest peak of Zyraxical, um, using Glamdring as a lightning rod and smoting his ruin upon the mountainside, one of the most badass things anyone's ever said. So good. Obviously, it's iconic. Everyone loves it. Here comes the Balrog! <laughs> <laughs> Favorite n- favorite video clip of the year 2021.
1: The number of people who sent that to me and yeah. said, "This is you," and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, it me," because I'm always like, "Here comes the ball, here rug. comes the ball, <laughs> So uh, yeah, I will say that that episode of Rings of Power where we we see a glimpse of Durin's Bay, and I'm immediately in my head, I go, "Here comes the ball, ball rug.
0: <laughs> rug. Well, not for another thousand years, but anyway, that's um,
1: <laughs> But he's yeah, there. He's he there. He's there. Oh Lord, he's coming nothing
0: <laughs> nothing beats that fight in the movies for me um well one more thing does but yeah I know it's an iconic scene but but had to get it in there because I've just loved it for most of my life at this point it rolls
1: again Ian McKellen MVP yes and he's
0: acting against what like nothing. And yeah, it's so good. good.
1: Yeah, well, I so we've each got one left. Yes, we've we've done eight. And all right, for my last one, it's a little bit of a cheat because it's not a particular scene, it's more of a, a thing that goes throughout all three films. But I had to go with. Howard Shore's score as the, the MVP of, of, you know, the Jackson trilogy, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how much heavy lifting Howard Shore's score does. I mean, if I, if I'm going to call out a specific moment, we got to go with Concerning Hobbits at the beginning of Fellowship. It sets the tone for you know this entire trilogy, and and just the the use of music as world building is just a masterclass in score. You know the beautiful um, kind of solo fiddle of of the Rohan theme, the you know everything that happens in Moria, um, the sort of ethereal kind of harp that you hear in Lothlorien, um, the like the little flutes and things in the Shire. I mean, it is just it is. Unbelievable. I mean, you can. There's a reason I, during the pandemic, was like, I'm gonna pick up my old violin again and teach myself <laughs> how to play some of the Lord of the Rings score, which is a true fact. Um, and I just, I, I think it is. It, it's unparalleled. It's absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, there are so many incredible music cues, and the way score is structured, and the way it is sort of you get emotional callbacks throughout all three films. I mean, it's just just. I cannot say enough good things. I mean, if I had to pick a specific one, we got to go with concerning hobbits, but I mean, yeah, literally all of it is, is perfect. Do you have a a particular favorite, you know, um, score moment or, or music cue?
0: Uh, the Rohan theme in Edoras is is also really oh, good, and if so I'm good. ever in New Zealand, that's probably why I would want to go see the Edoras set, is because the, the Howard Shore theme for that is so good. But having just rewatched uh, Fellowship Extended Edition when I was uh, sick recently, the concer- there's nothing like the Concerning Hobbits montage, especially what you're saying in terms of world building and stuff. Like Obviously, you have the, the opening minutes with the Galadriel narration and the Last Alliance, and that does a lot of world building, but... You know, hobbits are so key to the story, and you really need to know who they are and what they're like, and that score is so integral and it's funny to then grow up and learn that aside from the Lord of the Rings movies, uh Howard Shore has mostly uh, composed David Cronenberg movies, and that's his main yeah. creative partner, which is a little bit of a different tone than oh, we love these hobbits, but we including one of those movies is uh, a history of Violence, which also stars Vigo and is funny and kind of gives that movie a little bit a little bit more of like an l o t r. Uh, connective tissue. You know, you love Vigo in uh, Lord of the Rings. Highly recommend History of Violence if you haven't seen it. And you'll get some, you'll get some Howard Shore strings in there too.
1: The dream. The dream. <laughs> All right, bring us home. All right, Christian. I'm bringing us
0: home. I'm bookending it. You started with one of the Macbeth improvements. I'm going to finish with the other one, which is my favorite scene, perhaps in cinema, which is the last march of the Ents.
1: Hell yes.
0: It's incredible. Especially, you know, <laughs> Movies came out 20 years ago. Climate change only gets worse and worse every year as all the (laughs) sourmons of the world continue to pull the earth apart and turn all trees into lumber and and wood for fast furniture or clearing farmland or whatever else. And it just, man, I just wish that the trees could fight back uh, like they do in Lord of the Rings because there's just nothing like seeing this horrible industrial hellhole just get ripped apart by living trees uh, release the river I quote that <laughs> a lot too flooding it I remember in college I was talking with friends about my favorite oh crap faces in Lord of the Rings because there's a lot of them when, when something happens and it's true. Jackson zooms in on a character just being like oh, screw me and <laughs> uh, and I think the top there's just nothing better than Saruman coming out to the deck of Orthanc and and seeing the hence uh, wrecking all his stuff. It's just, it's awesome. The lead up of Treebeard's kind of radicalization is is so good. And, you know, having just read, I've been rereading Two Towers, the book, uh, you know, kind of what I was saying about Gandalf and, and that th- these books talk a lot about, you know, you don't know God's plan or the universe's plan or how things interact. Sometimes it seems like it's bad, but it's actually working out for good. In addition to Gollum, one of those things is, to go back to one of your earlier ones, the Urukai kill Boromir, and they take Merry and Pippin, and that seems like a defeat. It seems like this horrible tragedy. The Boromir died for nothing. He couldn't protect the hobbits from the Urukai. The end result of that is that the Urukai take Merry and Pippin, basically to Fangorn Forest, where they are able to start this avalanche and awaken the Ents and show them how bad things have gotten and how much their intervention is needed for the first time since the Elder Days, as Gandalf said. And so it all does kind of work out, at least in uh, Lord of the Rings. And then there's Marion Pippin's worth—you know, fool of a Took, throw yourself in next time. Well, if he had, then he wouldn't have been able to tell Treebeard to skirt by Orthanc and see all of his dead friends. It's just amazing. There's nothing like it, really, in in any other story or, or much less fantasy story. And I just never get—I just never get tired of the last march of the Ents. And again, bittersweet because they call it the last march. They're like, well, yeah. we're we're fading from the world. The, the Trebeard has a, more lines like this in the book um, that made me cry when I was reading them on the uh, on the subway a couple weeks ago, where he's just like, well, we're on our way out. The least we can do before we go is is help out everybody else and help out all the other peoples by getting Sarman out of here. And so it's just it's amazing. I love Trebeard. I love the ends. And so of course i'm not, I'm required. Um, by my own personal code, that I have to cite, one of my favorite fun facts of Lord of the Rings, which is Treebeard's way of talking and his blustery mode of speech, voiced by John Rhys Davies in the movies, um, is Tolkien's impression of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Incredible.
1: Incredible, Yeah. Honestly, on one hand, uh, very high praise because for Tolkien, yes. you know, he's like, "I'm going to take my best friend and make him a tree." Right. That's very high praise That's for high Tolkien, praise but for also. Tolkien. He's kind of the worst conversationalist and, you yes. know, needs to learn how to, you know, actually get things out. Um, no, I I couldn't agree more. I mean this this scene rolls. I, I you know, just it's and it, it only becomes more and more powerful with time and, and i just there's there's just a wonderful catharsis to it. You know, tearing down, you know, Orthanc and and and, you know, release the river is just um it's so good. It's so good. It's Yeah. So good. It's just so good. It rolls. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, but... um Really quick, one, wanted to run down. You know, when we we talk about the Peter Jackson films, they are incredible. They are a master of uh, a masterpiece of adaptation. But even you know, with the twelve hour runtime of the extended edition,
0: can't fit in everything.
1: You can't fit in everything. There are things that get get left out that you know, um, us book readers twenty years later are still a little bit salty about. I mean, yeah. we get it. I mean, most of the changes were made total sense. All those things. Love me some right. Tom Bombadil, but we don't have an hour to go spend and listen to as he sings all of his songs. But, um, you know, I want to hear from you really quick. What are the the things that you wish could have made it into the Peter Jackson films?
0: Um, I don't even know if it's wish that it could have made it in because I think the movies are are so amazing. And, and I think right. that, um, as we were saying, it just seemed like such an impossible. Like the fact that they pulled it off at all is truly an it's achievement. It's kind of a That's minor miracle. Because we take it for granted, like so much we of can. our modern pop culture is based on these movies. Um, that it's hard to fathom how impossible a task it seemed for a long time. And so I can't really fault them for changes they made. Probably the thing that's most missing that most Tolkien nerds would agree is the thing that's most left out. You know, Bombadil's kind of the jokey answer that has become less of a joke over time because we actually do love hey Tom Dol Bombadil. Mary Dol. Hey, Dol, Mary Dole. Hey, Mary Dole. His songs are amazing. They're bangers. Go read Fellowship. <laughs> Um, (laughs) The scouring of the Shire, I think, is really important to the arc of the story and to what Tolkien's saying about kind of what I was mentioning before, like the uselessness of war and that however valorous and heroic it is, it leads to carnage and, and to these cascading effects and that you can't go make war somewhere else and come home and the war won't follow you. And I understand why it's not in the movie. The Return of the King is already one of the longest mainstream movies ever made. And, and Extended, there's all this stuff to do. And it really does mess up the flow of, you know, the destruction of the ring does seem less... It's harder to wrap up. The destruction of the ring seems less cathartic if there's also still this problem to deal with. But I'm sure you would agree it's a uh, it's an important part of Tolkien's story and and is probably the one thing that I think most Tolkien heads would agree is 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 an unfortunate absence from the movies
1: agreed i think that's the one that that i miss the most i mean there's a lot of little things that i love i i love you know the hobbit's journey through the old forest and the barrow downs and all of that and um but yeah i i I think the scouring of the shower
0: yeah and i also i just want to add one thing before we go which is just that um we were talking about gimli and legolas's friendship this has been a funny rediscovery for me on my latest read that Galadriel's impact on Gimli is almost as massive as his friendship with Legolas. And basically, throughout the rest of the story, he just talks about Galadriel to, to everyone because they're always like, well, we went through Lothlorien. And then some character like Amr, for instance, will just be like, oh yeah, that witch or whatever. And Gimli's like, I'll fight you right now. <laughs> you say one bad thing about her. Uh, it's pretty amusing because like, I'd totally forgotten about it because it's totally absent from the movies and I under, understandably... Um Kate Blanchett's Galadriel has a very specific vibe and she doesn't get a ton of time with the fellowship in the movie cuz you got to keep things moving but uh that's been a very funny rediscovery is is what an impact Galadriel has has on Gimli.
1: That's how I feel about Rings of Power I'm like are you talking crap about Galadriel? I will fight you. (laughs) Like, how dare you? No. Yeah. There's just like so many lovely character moments that I I love. There's a lot of minor characters, the gray company and, and Halberad who, who come, you know, in, in return of the King. I love Elrond's sons, Eladon and Elrohir. Shout out to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Imrahil, the Swan Prince, like all these characters that (laughs) nobody cares about. Um, And one of my favorite lines in the book, as we were talking about, you know, Ian McKellen and and Saruman and, and, and Gandalf is, I love that bit where Saruman reveals himself and he's like, I'm no longer Saruman the White. I am Saruman of many colors and blah yeah. blah blah. And Gandalf just goes, yeah, I liked white better. I liked white it's better. Incredible. Iconic line. So yeah. anyway, there are there's so many great things to to discover in, in Tolkien's books and 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 the films. But man, the films. The so films, cool. they're amazing. You can
0: watch them anytime. I love watching them. And I love talking about Tolkien with you, Devin. And I hope everyone out there uh has enjoyed listening to all rings considered so far.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And we've still got a lot of fun things in the works just because rings of power is over. <laughs> doesn't mean that our, our journey into middle earth is not complete. So uh, please uh, like, and follow the podcast wherever you get your podcast, leave us a review on Apple podcasts um, and come find us on social media. Um, I'm at Devin Kogan. Christian is at CM Holub and come tell us uh, about your favorite moments. in yeah, the Yeah, please. Of the
0: rings. If we didn't mention any,
1: I mean, we could go for another three hours just talking about things that we love. But we can Um, go
0: forever on Twitter, so.
1: This is true. Come find us.
0: See you in Middle Earth.
1: Exactly. Thank you all so much for listening, um, and we will see you next time. And that's it for this episode of All Rings Considered. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Devin Kogan and at CM Holub.
0: This episode of All Rings Considered is hosted by Devin Kogan and Christian Holub, produced by Devin Kogan, Christian Holub, Chanel Johnson, Sami Junio, Lauren Klein, and Dalton Ross edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.